do not always openly share our motivations for our advocacy, research, and development work. For many, personal and perhaps very private experiences have shaped our desire to bring about disruptive change. In some circles and spaces, advocates and researchers are told that bringing in the personal will bias their approach, cloud their judgment, or breed unhelpful confrontation. A lack of detachment is seen as a liability rather than a strength. At the same time, some of the best advocates and researchers reach deep within themselves for their motivation. Personal and life experiences sustain their work against the headwinds. Perhaps there is something to be said about having something at stake. Today, in two parts, we take a look at how disruptive development often occurs through bringing the personal in. Welcome to Inside Leaders of Africa, the disruptive dev podcast that goes inside research, creative expression, and international development. I'm Peter Pinar, the director of the Leaders of Africa Institute and your host. We critically survey the international development space, explore important questions about forging a more just world, and discuss what's happening at Leaders of Africa and the Institute to tell a story of a vision, a community, and a disruptive transformation. Part 1. Personal Experience and Positionality I first met Violet Ochomo in the hallways of the Department of Political Science at Michigan State University. At the time, she was a first-year graduate student in public policy interested in gender justice. Before taking up her current post as a researcher at the University of Massachusetts at Boston, Violet has had a career journey with diverse experiences. These experiences include a run for Guild president at her now alma mater, Makareri University, to beginning and running several businesses as an entrepreneur in Uganda, her home country. It is not uncontroversial to say that Violet has an interest in, and I should say a love of, tackling new challenges. In many ways, these traits that illuminate her passion for development work have deeper roots that may not be apparent on the surface. But I will let Violet share herself. Violet, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Peter. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Wonderful. It's great to have you here. So I want to jump right in to our conversation today. And I actually want to go back in time a little bit. You are a proud graduate of Makareri University, that is Uganda's premier university. And I want to hear a little bit about your time at Makareri. What did you read? What was that experience like as an undergraduate? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I am a proud graduate of Makareri University, Kampala. And I joined the university in 2005. And I did study industrial and organizational psychology. So that's basically a fancy way of saying that you're combining traditional human resources management with organizational psychology. And the whole idea is to be able to understand your workers better by adding psychology into the equation. The end goal is to make sure that you have a more profitable company because the more you understand your workers and are able to meet their needs, then they're able to be more productive. So that's basically what I was studying. In terms of my life as an undergraduate, I didn't have a lot of fun in terms of a social life. I did study quite a lot, but I think that the highlight of 
my stay at the university was when I ran for guild president for the academic year 2006-2007. Tell us a little bit about what a guild president is. For those of uh, us <laughs> that are listening in, we don't know that sort of system or that term. Tell us what that means. Right. So that's basically student president, I would say. And of course, you become the main liaison between the student body and the university administration. Wonderful. So tell us, (laughs) what was that experience like running for the university student president, the guild president? When I was still in high school, it was a dream of mine. I said to myself, if I ever make it to the university, I want to run for guild president. And I don't come from money. I come from very humble beginnings. So for a girl in my place, that felt like a very wild dream. But someone had told me that the last female guild president who had completed her term had been the guild president in 1986. And then the next one had come on in 1995 Mm -hmm. and she didn't complete her term. And then there had never been a guild president who was female. And I felt that that was not right. And so I promised myself that if I made it to the university, I was going to run for guild president, regardless of whether I won or not. But I felt that this trend needed to be disrupted, Peter. So somehow I got into the university through a government of Uganda excellence scholarship. And true to my ambition, I ran for guild president. Like I said, coming from humble beginnings, I didn't have money, you know, and it was always a big deal. I mean, it was a full slate campaign with slits of cars, posters, music and campaign rallies. And I I did it. And it it happened that I was the only girl against about 10 boys. Macquarie University is a, a political hotspot. And so political parties come in and sponsor candidates. So when I came in as a girl and all my other competitors were boys, Another competing political party brought in a girl and in the end she won. But when she won, for me, it was a victory for me and everybody else because finally we were able to upset this trend. Yeah, disruptive development, I know. But it was a win for me and for for all the girls. And I'm proud to say that since then we've had more female guild presidents and that's something I'm proud of. And yeah, that was the highlight of my time there. Before we delve into our conversation, I have to ask one question. What are the Mm -hmm. issues that a guild president deals with? Or in this campaign, what were some of the issues that students had at the university? (laughs) Of course, there were several issues, you know, issues to do with accommodation. Students would tell you they needed to have their halls of residence updated. They needed to have better meals. They needed to have better health services. They needed to have better educational facilities, tuition decreases and other supplementary benefits. Basically, all the problems that affect the students on campus and off campus because the guild president and their committee is basically the main liaison between the student body and the university. So definitely you'll be hearing about all the problems affecting the students such that you can convey them and bargain in their interests with the university administration. So going back to those days at Makareri, you mentioned that you focused on the area of HR management and psychology, but that's Mm -hmm. not what you're doing now and obviously not what you're known for doing. So I want to hear a little bit about 
that journey from your undergraduate major, what you were thinking about studying at that level, and then what is taking you to this present level? And I understand that personal experience has inspired some of this move. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, you're right. My path has not been straight, but rather has gone through turns and twists. But yes, here I am. So like I said, Peter, I started with industrial organizational psychology, but I always had an interest in women's issues and you know women's affairs, gender issues. And again, I would like to make the clarification that gender does not necessarily mean women because many times when gender is mentioned, automatically people think women, but it's not so. However, I was mostly interested in women's issues when it came to the gender space. And that is partly what drove me to run for guild president to disrupt this trend of only having male runners for the guild president's office. And so when I graduated, I did work for a bit and then I went into the entrepreneurship space. While I was in that space, I mostly employed girls and women, particularly girls who had had rough experiences in their lives, either battling sexual violence or intimate partner violence. And this was a result of me having my own personal experiences with this as a child and then again as a young adult. And I felt that this was my way of giving back to these girls and giving them an opportunity to have agency and self-determination through financial independence. I eventually came to realize that at the capacity that I was, I could only do so much, but I wanted to do more. I later realized that if I went into the policy and development space, perhaps I would be able to impact the lives of many more women at the same time through my contributions to gender and policy. And so I switched careers. I went to study public policy. And then, of course, I did the specialization in gender justice. And so at the moment, I'm known for my work in the gender justice and policy space. And so, Peter, that's how I came to to be in this space. Our theme today is bringing in the personal. So how would you say you bring in the personal? It stemmed from personal experiences, both as a child and a young adult, you know, with sexual violence as a child and then later intimate partner violence as a young adult. And I want to say that this is not a story that is unique to just me, but it's something that I saw happening in the lives of many of the women around me, you know, my relatives, my friends, neighbors. And somehow later I learned that it was built into the social cultural fabric of my community. And when it came to issues of a man assaulting a woman that he had no intimate relationship with, that could clearly be taken as a case of assault and the police would easily pick it up. But when it came to issues where a man assaulted a woman with whom he had an intimate relationship. Then the authorities stepped out of it and it became a family matter. And then because of the way that we are raised, you are told now that you are married, your dowry has been paid. You cannot bring shame to the family. You have to stick it out. Matters in the home are not supposed to be discussed in public. You're not supposed to embarrass your husband. You're not supposed to bring disrepute to your family name. So The burden falls on the woman to double down, if I might say, and try to save the marriage at the expense of her health, her mental health, and even her life at times. And so when I spoke to the women around me, 
many of the answers I got were akin to what I just said. And also things like, oh, don't worry. He's still a young man. When he, he grows older, he'll get feeble and he won't hit you again. Or sometimes things along the lines of, I experienced this when I was your age. Don't worry. As my husband grew older, he became weaker. And so he didn't hit me again. Others would say, this is a sign that your husband loves you. Actually, if he doesn't hit you, then something is wrong. And I didn't think that that was right. And I felt that there had to be a better way. And so this is what really sparked not just my curiosity, but the need to do something more, the need to help influence and shape policy for women to create an environment where they could be protected, where their human rights would be respected. Because when you think about it, Peter, the people that come into public service that occupy places of responsibility in terms of law enforcement and even policymaking, these are people who all come from within the same social cultural infrastructure. And somehow these ideas and these notions influence who they are and the kinds of policies that they make. And I think that is a very important thing to realize. I felt that as much as we had policymakers in place, we needed voices that could challenge the status quo. Because I remember many times in Uganda, we've had the marriage and divorce bill that was supposed to be passed and it stalled on the floor of parliament for years because somehow very influential members from the religious community would not support it certain lawmakers wouldn't support it. I remember, I think it was 2018, on International Women's Day, we had a male lawmaker get up on the floor of parliament and say, you need to discipline your women. Sometimes you need to put your hands on them. And I was like, how exactly is this even right? And that person was never impeached. And then there was a female lawmaker who said, I've always wanted to help women. But now that I'm in parliament, I don't know if I'm in the right place. So if a policymaker is saying that, and she said that they as women were being harassed by the male lawmakers, what is a woman who has never gone to school and is a farmer in some village supposed to say, or who then is supposed to speak up for her? So issues like this kept coming up and I felt that something more needed to be done. And that is how I ended up in the gender justice and policy space. Interestingly, the Round 7 Afrobarometer survey in Uganda from 2017 has a question about citizens' attitudes about whether it is all right to beat a wife. I'm looking at Uganda, and 82% say it is never acceptable under any circumstance. What is your reaction? How should we interpret these figures? Is there something more? I need to make it clear that intimate partner violence goes beyond just physical abuse, just beating. It entails other forms of abuse like emotional abuse, financial abuse, and all these other intangible forms of abuse. We are not yet at the point where all these forms of abuse are recognized. So you may find that a partner is emotionally abusive, but because they don't lay hands on a woman, they think they are not being abusive. So the question becomes, are the people who were interviewed even understand the whole idea of intimate partner violence in its completeness? I do know that in the 2016 Health and Demographic Survey for Uganda from the World Bank, instances of intimate partner violence for women ages 15 to 49 
was at a national average of 51%. And then for the West Nile areas that were hosting refugees, it was averaging around 64%. I think that while education and exposure is changing attitudes, it still is there. And then I also know from my experiences growing up in Uganda and living most of my life there that, again, unless it's physical violence, most of the time other forms of intimate partner violence are not necessarily recognized or acknowledged. I think that's a powerful point that there has been a lot of outreach or, you know, conversations that have happened around intimate partner violence and there have been some outreach efforts and such. So perhaps that's changing people's superficial attitudes, not necessarily in practice. And as you mentioned, it may be compartmentalizing what intimate partner violence looks like. Certain things may be more taboo or more off limits, although we can question that whether that's the case, whereas other things are, you know, are not being discussed at all. The issue of sort of mental health in the case of relationship. Yeah. Because even when you look at the the outreach that goes on, sometimes adverts would run on TV or radio and it was always, oh, you shouldn't beat your wife. Mm. But how about emotional abusiveness? How about financial abusiveness? How about psychological abuse? These things are not yet or at least are addressed to a very small extent because, again, mental health is not yet something that is honored to the extent that I feel it should be because, again, it is a very interconnected web that needs to be unraveled. And it's going to take a lot of time because even for me, I only thought intimate partner violence was physical violence at the beginning. It took exposure for me to know that it came in different forms. And then I began to recognize all its other forms in my life. So I think it's a journey, but I think that every brick towards the building counts. And I'm hoping that At the end of the day, yes, from now, we will be in a much better space because we have so many people doing wonderful work in this area. And I applaud everybody who's doing this. And I think that the biggest step is in creating awareness because, again, I am not demonizing the men, but I'm just saying that sometimes when we are conditioned a certain way, it doesn't seem wrong until you are exposed to otherwise. And so I think that awareness for both women and men, because I mean, the whole idea of a woman saying that my husband shows me that he loves me by beating me, that is twisted. So I do believe that it starts with awareness and letting women know that love does not have to hurt. It has to be a safe space. You have to feel safe in your own home. I'm hoping that years from now we'll be in a much better place and every little effort that goes towards that cause is noble. So as you know, when it comes to gender interventions, oftentimes those gender interventions center around women empowerment. And I'm wondering if we're also having those conversations and translating those conversations for men as well, since they're involved in this as well. Are they at the table? Are they having these conversations? If not, what do you suggest one does to ensure that there's inclusiveness when it comes to men in these conversations and spaces as well? That is a very great question, Peter, and a question that needs to be asked because we cannot empower women and leave men out of the equation. And that is something that in my work, 
I'm very aware of and something that I always strive to make sure is addressed because think about it. Men are our allies. You cannot do any kind of work without the help of your allies. We all need allies in whichever space that we are working in. Because think about it again. As much as we may say as women that our social cultural system has failed us in many ways, I do think it has failed the men in many ways as well. I do think that that has contributed to the high rates of intimate partner violence in families because when you have a man who is under financial pressure, social pressure, family pressure, he's going to take it out on his wife, the person that's closest to him. So I think that men need to be paid attention to. They need to be at the table. They need to be a part of the conversation. And if we want a healthy society overall, that's what needs to be done. So we've been talking a bit about your experience as well as intimate partner violence. And it sounds like your personal experiences have inspired you and some of your activism work that comes through quite a lot. But there are some that say when it comes to development work, when it comes to research, when it comes to academia, that it's sometimes best to do something that you're not so personally attached to. Those personal attachments, Mm -hmm. those experiences can create some sort of bias in how you're looking at evidence, how you're engaging with stakeholders, right? Like you've come in there Mm -hmm. with your mindset, you know what you want to show, you're the advocate. Mm -hmm. And some have said, well, that's not a good way to go about doing development work or doing research. And I'm curious if you've ever heard that sentiment echoed in any space that you've been operating in. And And how did you sort of respond to that if you have heard those types of sentiments? Absolutely, Peter, you are right. There are people who think that our personal experiences should not necessarily influence the journey that we take up in life when it comes to advocacy, development work and research. And I personally have experienced this. I remember in my early graduate student years, I did come across a professor who was doing a lot of work in intimate partner violence, actually, and I wanted to work with him. And this professor listened to me and then eventually told me, no, I cannot work with you because you would be biased. I mean, you are not the right person to be doing this work. I would rather work with a student who is just simply coming at this from an inquisitive position and they just want to know what it's all about and have never experienced this. And are just doing it for scientific purposes. As someone who was just studying my graduate student career in public policy, I was broken. For a while, I felt like I was wasting my time. For a while, I felt like I couldn't do this because someone who had done this for over 20 years told me that I couldn't. And then I came across feminist epistemology in the same department with a different professor who was working on intimate partner violence issues. And then I began to read more into this and it was something that was questioning our mainstream or our traditional ways of thinking things needed to be done. And it began to make sense to me. And then I met other professors and other people who were doing work and I came to learn about things like interpretivism and critical theory and positionality, whereby I learned that at the end of the day, no matter how objective we think we want to be, 
we always bring ourselves into our work. There's no boundaries. As much as we say, okay, this is my work and this is my personal life. At the end of the day, we always bring ourselves into our work. And as researchers and as development people or as activists, we always need to question our positionalities and ask ourselves why. Because we all have biases and many of these biases are implicit. Because I could argue that even for the professor who said that, you know, or for the people who think that we need to come to the issues that we study from a completely impersonal point of view, I could argue that that too is a bias. So I just want to say that it is only right that as researchers and as activists or scholar activists or people doing development work, we need to interrogate our biases We need to always be aware of our positionalities because regardless of what we are doing, we're always positioned a certain way in relation to what we are studying, the communities we are studying or relating with. We always bring ourselves into the equation. I believe that when your experiences inform why you are doing what you are doing, it just stops being just work you are doing. Because I know for a fact that for the things that I just come to from, you know, a very aloof position, it feels like work because I'm separate from it. But for things that I have an intrinsic interest, it stops just being work. It becomes a purpose. And even while you're running the data and doing the analysis, Those figures just stop being numbers on your screen. You realize that these are actual human beings with stories, with lives, and you treat your data with much more respect. It influences the way you write. It influences the ethics of your research because it goes beyond just pursuing a research interest and trying to publish copiously. It becomes something that you do with a certain respect and an innate desire to create actual valuable change and not just change from where you are standing, but change that is meaningful to the people that you are researching. Because when you come to think about it, many times what we as researchers think is what people need sometimes is not what they need. So just understanding these things allows you to listen better. It shifts your perspectives. And at the same time, It creates empathy because Peter, research is for humanity. We research to make the human condition better, to improve the human condition. So I think that the more that we are attuned to what we are studying or to the work that we are doing, the better we are able to connect with the people that we want to help or whose voices we want to amplify. Because I believe at the end of the day that research should amplify voices because it's not about what the researcher wants to achieve. It should be about amplifying those voices. And so I think personal experience helps you connect better and helps you understand certain things that go beyond just the numbers and the statistics and helps you amplify those voices better. So I just think it provides a much better understanding of the work that we do. Before we go, you are working on some great projects, including with the University of Massachusetts, Boston's McCormick Graduate School, the School of Nursing, and the Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. We'd love to hear a little bit about what you're working on right now. So what are you up to? Right now, I'm working on a project called Boston Bath Equity. So we are looking at women in Boston and the greater Boston area who have had a child within the last 12 months 
And we're trying to look at maternal mortality and even child mortality and their birthing experiences within this period, especially coupled with COVID-19. Because I don't know if you're aware, but Black women in the United States are three to four times much more likely to experience maternal mortality compared to their white counterparts. And so we want to help improve their birthing outcomes through policy, but it needs to be driven by data. We are working with representatives from the Massachusetts State House in conjunction with the University of Massachusetts, Boston's McCormack Graduate School and the School of Nursing. So right now, that's where my gender justice work is at right now, although I have also been involved in other projects here in the United States and Uganda and in Nigeria as well. I would like to speak to whoever might be listening to me right now who wants to go into a research area or a scholarly area, and it's maybe influenced by their experiences. I just want to speak to that person and let them know that if you are convicted about something that you want to do, you are the best person for the job because then your convictions will always help you push through boundaries that perhaps you may not have pushed through if your motivations were superficial. And I just want to say that no matter where we are geographically, we can always improve the outcomes of the people that we care about. So I may be in the United States at the moment and doing work in the Boston area at the moment, but my heart is still at home. And I also know that with technology and where we have reached in the world, you can still help impact change in a place that you are not physically. And so I just think that if you are looking into going into a particular area, follow your heart and you'll be glad that you did. And of course, there'll always be naysayers and there'll always be pushback. But usually when you're doing something great, there'll always be pushback and that should be something that should guide you. But at the end of the day, follow your convictions. And like we always say, Peter, At the end of the day, we're all striving for a better Africa, which will become a much better contributor to the global system. So every bit of work that we do, no matter where we are, all is a piece of the puzzle that eventually will create something beautiful. Thank you, Violet, for sharing. Thank you so much, Peter. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Part 2. The Pursuit of Child's Rights Our personal motivations for advocacy emerge in different ways. The Coalition Against Child Labor in Zimbabwe brings together organizations in Zimbabwe to advocate for child rights and the full realization of the Convention on the Rights of the Child in the country. At the heart of the struggle for child rights is ensuring that educational opportunities are embraced by all families and children. I'm joined by Pascal Masosha, who is the director of the Coalition Against Child Labor in Zimbabwe and an alumni scholar of the Leaders of Africa Institute's Research Methods Program 2020 and the Podcast Masterclass. Joining Pascal is his colleague, Ednathi Ngandini, who is a project officer and present scholar in the Research Methods Program 2021 at the Institute. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Peter. So I want to start with you, Pascal. I'm just 
kind of curious. We've been talking a lot about what has drawn us to our field of development work and research. And I'm curious, were there personal experiences, educational or otherwise, that really inspired you to think about issues of child rights, both regionally as well as in Zimbabwe in particular? Let me say both by personal experiences as well as my choice of you know, academic field inspired me into development work. When I grew up at around nine, my parents broke up and my father got as a stepmother. Thereafter, she was not very much interested in seeing me in school because there were obviously financial commitments to go with it. So she volunteered me out of school. I became a head boy looking after cattle for a whole year. I must say the experiences as a head boy were really very, very traumatizing. You know, during that time, I would actually see my peers going to school while I joined the older boys into the bush to head cattle. It was a very traumatizing experience. It was nasty. My peers would only come back later during the day, and then I would join them to play. So I really felt isolated when I was young. I really felt that I was losing out. I really felt, you know, like an outcast. But thank goodness, after a nasty divorce, my mother won, you know, us children over to her side. She was a school teacher. My father was also a school teacher. So once the court case was over and we were handed over to our mother for custody, she then brought me back to school. And I was overjoyed to get a second chance. It was like a rebirth of some kind. And so when I went back to school, I was much more focused. I was elated to get a second chance. And therefore, I made use of it. I realized I was actually doing much better than I had before that. I easily went to the top of the class. My studies took me to all levels, to A levels, to university. Thereafter, I went into the teaching field. Because during that time, the teaching profession was really well-paying. It was also quite a prestigious job. I also remembered my own background to assist those children that were disadvantaged because I knew what it felt like for children to miss out on school. So this is where I actually developed a passion with children. And later I was to realize that I had actually been a child laborer. When I got to know that there was something called child labor, I knew then that I was a typical example of one such. So I became interested even in doing some research. I got into the NGO world, joined an organization which was just starting. And I was lucky to be appointed the national coordinator for this organization, which was focused on child labor. And this is an area which I had always been passionate about. So in short, that's my story. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of your experiences as well in just a bit. I'm curious... Nathy, how about you? What were your personal experiences or motivations that took you to also be interested in and research and work in this important field of child rights and child rights advocacy? It also started when I was young. I was very privileged to go to school, primary school, high school, and even university without any problems and my parents could provide all that for me. So at an early age, I had friends who did not manage to go further with their education. And after high school, when I went to the University of Zimbabwe to study psychology, 
I realized I had no childhood friends because they were all gone due to financial problems. So I started feeling like, where are all my friends? Right now, I have new friends from college and even from high school. Some of them didn't manage to go to university. That's when I started to see the reality of life. Yes, I am privileged. Yes, I was privileged to reach to this stage in life. But where are my peers? Where are those people that I grew up with? Where are those people that I learned with for seven years during my primary education? So it was actually something that raised awareness in me. And I started to look for them even on social media. And alas, I realized they were not even on social media platforms. So it was really a time for me to wake up and see the other side of life. That's when I started advocating for equal rights for all of us, education to even the less privileged. And I was lucky enough to be part of the groups that were advocating for education for all during university. So that's what actually brought me to this. Pascal, coming back to you, one of the things that you've mentioned is your story and how you became interested in advocacy, right? As your professional journey and a personal journey. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the organization, which now you are the director for, as well as whether you're seeing a lot of folks who also come from backgrounds that have faced issues related to child rights and child laborers who have come into the field of child rights and labor. Do you see that a lot? Yes. My organization is known as Coalition Against Child Labor in Zimbabwe. And basically, we focus on identifying children who are out of school. They could be heading cattle, they could be domestic workers, especially the girls, or they could be vendors, you know. So we try to bring these children back to school, and our focus is on children 9 to 18. We try to bring them back to school, we give them startup eggs, we get them to like school, but we also support the schools so that they become child-friendly, because we realize some children are out of school not necessarily because they do not have the resources, but because school sometimes becomes boring, becomes, you know, insipid. And so we realize the schools have a part to play to excite uh, pupils to, so that they remain in school. So I've seen a lot of children out there who need our help. We have tried to bring them back to school. But I have also been lucky enough to travel the world over to share experiences with colleagues who are also doing similar work because our organization has become part of a global network, which is known as the Stop Child Labor Global Campaign. We carry out exchange visits to such countries like Uganda, Ethiopia, Mali, Morocco, Kenya, India, Nepal. I've actually been to all those countries and I've seen children in different statuses of distress. And I've seen how child labor wears the face of poverty in different parts of the world. I've seen responses from different countries to try and help these children. This has sort of inspired me to then want even to carry out research in, into this field to find out why children in the first place get into child labor and what responses work to try and you know, ameliorate this situation. In India, I have actually been able to 
experience a response, which is known as the area-based approach. They get into an area, they identify children who are out of school, they bring these children back to school, give them startup eggs. So an area like that, once it's cleared of no child labor, with all the children now going to school, can be declared what they call a child labor-free zone. So we adapted that approach and we are actually trying to pilot it you know, in Zimbabwe. And ESNAT is one of my frontline project officers in that response. We have seen children benefiting through education. We have seen them changing, transforming their lives into something much better. The school environment is the best for children, especially here in Africa, where even the teachers play the watchdog role to make sure that children are safe. One of the things that you oftentimes see in the advocacy space is that at first you see advocates who emerge from the communities that they're trying to serve. So we think about those who have experienced child labor as being a child laborer or having issues with interrupted education or something of this nature, right? Complications surrounding their education and then going into the advocacy field. Then other times we see that advocates have not had those personal experiences directly, but they're interested perhaps in advocacy, interested, for example, in child's rights. And in your organization, in, in the context in Zimbabwe, what do you see? Do you see a lot of those folks who are in the space of child rights advocacy also having personal experiences that have motivated them? Or are they coming to think about issues of child rights through other avenues? Yes, I would say it's actually twofold. We have advocates who have emerged from some distressful situations who are actually driven by a passion to correct things because they themselves have experienced such things. But we have also seen advocates from the academia, people who have started off a career you know, after graduating from college, and they were probably doing this just as a job. But in the process, through experiences, they were able also to develop a passion and they transformed themselves into human rights activists, into human rights advocates. We've seen this happening. Adnathi. So Pascal mentioned some of the projects the coalition is working on right now. Why don't you tell us about some of the projects that you're working on now? Tell us a little bit about your advocacy portfolio. We are working on a project called It's Time to Talk, which is about child participation, whereby we are trying by all means to allow children's voices to be heard in our government, in our communities, and also globally. Do we as adults listen to children's problems? What are the causes of children's distress? Why do they fail to perform in school? Do we give them that platform to voice out whilst we listen on the background? So it's actually something that we have been working on. And through research also, we've managed to see that our local authority and also our stakeholders, they say they are doing something on child participation. But is it really happening in our environment or in our communities? So it's something that leaves us with a great debate that we really need to focus more on giving children a platform whereby they can exercise their rights, whereby their voices can be heard. I don't think the policymakers are doing enough for the children's voices to be heard. And so in listening to children, what are some of the things, Ethnathi, that they're saying? 
or trying to say on different platforms. So what are the, some of the things that you're hearing on the ground from children? Our children have a lot to say, especially the child laborers. They are saying, yes, we are going to work and at the same time going to school. It's helping our parents in a way, but it's causing a lot of distress to us. They don't have a safe environment or a safe community where they can go and say, I'm distressed because at the same time I'm working and at the same time I'm going to school is giving me too much burden. So we need to create spaces whereby children can go either report or say out stuff that are affecting them. Parents are not giving enough space for children to say or to complain to them. African parents don't really look at children and listen to them that much. It's you as a child or as a youth who have to listen to the parent most of the times. So those are some of the issues that we face in the I know that you yourself are also working on getting information and research out to folks as well. And you're presently doing research in the research methods program at the Leaders of Africa Institute. So I'm curious about your research. Tell us a little bit about it. I've been working on getting information about the Sadiq region. At the moment, I've been following and digging deep into child advocacy groups that exist in South Africa in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, is surrounding Sadiq countries. And I've realized also a lot of things about child participation in those countries. For example, we look at Mozambique. They've managed to have a child parliament. And we also go to the Johannesburg Child Advocates Forum, which also encourage child protection rights. So we look at a lot of Sadiq countries and a lot of nations globally. And we realize they are very aware of child participation. They are very aware of child rights. And Pascal, same question to you. You've also been doing some research and you've been working on your PhD as well. And I assume that some of the similar themes that Ethnathi mentioned are in your research as well. So why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about your research? Child participation is at the heart of communication. And if children are not afforded a chance to participate, then their communication skills are very limited. What are the perceptions of policymakers on this very important subject of child participation? The idea of is to eventually make recommendations to the government as to what kind of framework might be developed to promote child participation within our own context. Because you know, child participation differs from context to context. The way children participate in Europe is not the same as the way children would participate. We have actually seen structures initiated by the government for the participation of children, like the Child Parliamentary Forum, junior councillors at a local authority level. But are these forums promoting effective and genuine participation by the children, or are they elitist, only bringing in children from those schools that are elitist, what is happening to the rural child, for instance? This is still a very new area where, despite the ratification of the UNCRC, participation itself has never really been looked at within the context of our own country. 
If you could share a little bit more about what you've learned and what kind of support you received at the Institute, how has that shaped your research? The leaders of Africa have been very helpful from the start. If I start to tell you what I have learned and how it has helped me at work and in my research area, we would listen to it all day long. The information that I'm learning from the leaders of Africa, it has really helped me to shift my focus from the qualitative research method, which I was working on from university level and even at work, and go on to dig deep and look at the quantitative side of research, which has managed to help me to see that it's quite easier with quantitative research to look at issues even regarding child rights and child labor. And I would like to say thank you to leaders of Africa for this opportunity. So a big shout out to leaders of Africa. How about you, Pascal? You've been on the dissertation journey now. And as you move through that, which is a very long process for those of you who have done a PhD or are considering a PhD. So tell us a little bit about how the Leaders of Africa and the Leaders of Africa Institute has supported you and helped you think about your research in new and different ways. I was very lucky to join Leaders of Africa Research Methods 2020 at a time when I was also doing my PhD studies because I was really able to gain you know, a deeper appreciation into research methods, both qualitative as well as quantitative. So one can actually carry out your research even on a global level. And this is what Africa needs right now. Researchers who should be able to inform the policy-making process through empirical evidence. And when I tie this up with my own work as a human rights activist, I realize the importance of presenting empirical evidence to the policymakers through research. Because once you have carried out research and you have presented your findings, and the research is credible, there is no reason why the, the policymakers should not change policies. So I think this is the way to go for Africa. And uh, I think leaders of Africa is actually going to transform the way things are done in Africa for the better in terms of enabling you know, many of these young people like ESNAT and so forth to carry out research and convince policymakers of the need to change policies through empirical evidence. I think this is where the Leaders of Africa Institute has got its greatest strength, empowering young academics to carry out research and help policymakers so that they don't do things by rule of thumb. This is why I think Leaders of Africa is going to be very relevant, is going to be very important, and is actually going to be very useful to the continent. Thank you, Pascal. And we're happy to have both of you in the Leaders of Africa family. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. It is time we are honest and open and bring in the personal to our work. Yes, not all of us have immediate personal experiences that motivate our advocacy and international development work, but there should always be a space for sharing our personal reflections and motivations. And that's all the time we have on Inside Leaders of Africa, the Disruptive Dev Podcast. Follow and subscribe to Inside in your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Before we go, we have some exciting news. The annual Disruptive Dev Conference is coming later this year, 
If you want to get involved, present, or share your thoughts on disrupted development in your area of expertise, reach out. And as always, continue the conversation on disrupted dev in the Leaders of Africa Discord community. Keep bringing that disruptive change, and I'll see you next time.